Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father God, you are so good. And as often as we confess or recite, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. We often also find ourselves maybe in a, a flesh-based honesty saying, the Lord is my shepherd and I do indeed want a lot of things. God, we, we praise you that you are enough. And we pray that by your grace and mercy and the power and work of your Holy Spirit that we would realize that more fully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember being somewhere around 8th, ninth grade. And there being a school assembly where someone came and they told us about this magical group called the Rotary Club. <laughs> and that if you had the right grades and school participation and outlook and behavior in the classroom, you too could be part of this magical group. And once part of this magical group, all the opportunities in life would open up for you. That there were possibilities of college scholarships and career connections. And it seemed like if you could just get into this group, the, the magic, wonderful Rotary Club, that your life from then on would have so much more promise and opportunity and greatness. The problem for me was that they told us this news shortly before selecting and inviting people to be in said Rotary Club. And so as someone who, while for the most part was well-behaved, would tend to, and this will be hard for you to believe, but would tend to talk to the people around him in class a lot. <laughs> and tend to value a good time with friends more than studying. That what it meant for me is that I was not selected for Rotary Club. Indeed, by the time I found out that the Rotary Club existed, I had already disqualified myself and did not have any uh, amount of time to right the ship and earn my way in. And so I was not surprised when I wasn't selected, but I was a little bummed because this life of grand fortune via the Rotary Club was not available to me. Aren't you glad the gospel doesn't work that way? Aren't you glad that when you hear about the gospel, it's not too late, that you haven't already disqualified yourself? Aren't you glad that we don't have to earn our way into heaven? That you being here doesn't get you another stamp in your book that you can show to St. Peter at the pearly gates and he'll be like, oh, I see you. You went to church on June 26th. That was a good day. That's double points that day. You didn't know we were running a promotion. Some of you are just now finding out there's no promotion today and, and might have to go to the restroom uh, so you can hit the golf course in time. 
But this is such good news that the gospel cannot be earned, and indeed salvation cannot be earned, but must be received. And it's this idea of receiving eternal life. It's, it's one that we see throughout Scripture, that Paul says our salvation is a gift of God, this gift of grace that we receive by faith, and that's how we're saved. And in the passage today, we're going to read about people, this idea that, that salvation is received and inherited. Eternal life is a given thing. And as we've been moving our way through Mark, we've seen a lot of talk about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand, marks of the kingdom of God, whether that's lifestyle or values or how you determine greatness and priorities. But today, the passage revolves around how we enter the kingdom of God, how we get in, or as we're going to read, how we receive or inherit eternal life. And we're going to see that it's through faith alone, it's God's power. But that doesn't always stop us from trying or thinking that we can in some way, because we ourselves are very, very special, that we can somehow achieve it. And I hope this passage today disavows us of that concept. So let's read. Mark 10, starting in verse 13. If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to as I, I begin reading. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come in eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. To receive the kingdom of God and with it eternal life, we must first lose what we often cling to. We need to lose what we cling to. So in, in order to receive eternal life, you need to lose your ego. We have this scene unfolding where Jesus is teaching and people are bringing their children so that Jesus might touch them. And the disciples, doing Jesus a grand favor, rebuked the young parents and said, take them to the nursery now. We have children's church in the back. That's not what they said. We have a nursery. We offer it. We want to help young families. Um, but they rebuked them. Don't you see Jesus is important doing adult stuff? He doesn't have time for the children. And, and what we see here is that our ego gets in the way of kingdom values. Because our ego is going to value the wrong things. The disciples are displaying again a thinking that is contrary to the kingdom of God. They assume Jesus is too important, with the, too, too busy talking to the important adults to be bothered by the children, and they assumed wrong. The text tells us that Jesus was indignant with them. Now, I'm no life coach. But if your choices get to the point where the Son of God is indignant with you, you've probably made a wrong step or two. See, they have set out a value of importance that magically put them in the middle. And this is what our ego does. Our ego will create levels of importance and levels of significance that somehow magically elevate our own status. Well, to be good at it is to do it my way. To be smart is to think about it my way. Clearly, I'm the most integral part of the kingdom of God. Can't be bothered by these children. The fact of the matter is that the Lord has always valued children. One example I'll point to this is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. We have the Shema, the first commandment given to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then what are you to do next with that love? You're going to impress it upon your children. In Deuteronomy 6, the sermon goes, Moses starts out, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and impress these things upon your children. Over and over again in the journey from Egypt to Israel, there's these monuments built up. Why? So you can tell your children about the power and the love and deliverance of God. And then what we see is that first generation dies out and no one knows these things. 
And every now and then through the Old Testament, there's this great working of redemption in God and this great working of power and might from God for the sake of the people. And one generation will follow God. God loves our children so much so that he commands us to tell them about him and to teach them about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what does it mean for us as a church to be a good church for kids, to be a church that does not hinder kids? It means, one, I'm just going to go through a few practical things. It means we take security very seriously. So if anyone's going to work with children in our church, they go through a background check and a training before they can be alone in a classroom with kids. And in fact, we don't want anyone alone. We try to team people up. We try to have open doors. We're very intentional about these things from nursery through high school. We seek to provide great facilities. When I, when I give tours of our building to people who are new to the church, whether that's part of a membership class or they're just new and they want to see around, one of my favorite places in the church to show them is our kids' Sunday school rooms because they are amazing. I encourage you to ask kids which, their, which Sunday school room has been their favorite as they're, they're almost sets for the curriculum. We have and seek to have and constantly are recruiting enthusiastic leaders who would love our children, who would love God's word, who would help our children to know God's word and know how much their heavenly father loves them and know how they can enter into salvation through Christ. We do child dedications where young families can bring up their young children and say, I'm presenting my kid to the Lord and I need this church to help me raise this kid. And so let us not hinder them. Let us not look down on the noise of kids, but celebrate it that this is a child made in God's likeness. Let us not avoid ministry opportunities, but, but chase them down and prioritize them and get trained and go through background checks. And let's not be rude. Let's not be rude to kids. The disciples here were so rude. They were not kind. They were not loving. And so our ego can get in the way of kingdom values by saying that someone doesn't matter, especially someone who, who can be easily marginalized. As we see through Jesus' ministry, he pulls people out of the margins and into the family of God. But our ego gets in the way of faith. Because these children weren't just there to be blessed. These children were there so Jesus could teach them about their own entering into God's kingdom. Truly, I say to you, and whenever we see Jesus say truly, the text is telling us this is a point of emphasis. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. One of the dangers of ego-driven sense of self-importance is that we don't just miss those that God values, but we miss what they would have to teach us. Jesus is teaching them, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you need to do it like a child. You need to do it with a sense of trust. God has said this, so I'm just, I'm going to accept it and believe it. There's a simplicity to that. And, and I know we're, we're all in different ways 
we struggle, like, is this real? Am I believing this? And there's a simplicity to, to believing it like a child believes a good parent. But there's also this sense of dependency and this, this need to be cared for and blessed. That when we come to God with this, this simple trust, when we come to God out of this dependency, when we come to God out of this need to be cared for, this need to be blessed by Him, we get a sense of what it is to, to enter and receive the kingdom like a child. Because we don't enter the kingdom of God as independent adults. We don't enter the kingdom of God as someone with a full-time job. We enter the kingdom of God as adopted children of the king. So let us learn from children. Because we are children. We are children of God when we have come to salvation. Christianity is not for those who are self-sufficient, who have their life figured out, but for those who realize that they have a need, who know who they are, who know their shortcomings, who know their limitations, and they come to the Lord who fulfills that need. The Lord who is the shepherd, that when we walk with Him, we shall not want. And so we need to lose this ego that we often cling to, and we also need to lose our moralism that we often cling to. And here we come to, a, a, for many of us, what's a, a very familiar story, and for some of you, maybe a very new story, and it's this, this young man who in the, the synoptic Gospels, in, in Matthew and Luke, we, we learn that this is a young man and that he's a wealthy young man. And he chases down Jesus, kneels before him. And, and let's just read this interaction again before we work through it. Is this, this young guy is really holding on to his moralism. Good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You just sense the desperation that he runs him down and kneels before him. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he goes, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This guy is a picture of what it is to be moral and miserable. Your morals are not going to make you happy. You can't rely on your moralism to be the key to happiness and joy. Christ is the key to joy. The Holy Spirit produces joy in us. But if I'm resting on my morals, well, I'm just going to do the right thing all the time and I'll be so happy. I'm going to fail. And so this guy, he comes and he's, he's moral and miserable and he's wealthy and miserable. He ought to be the picture of completeness and happiness. He's making all the right choices He, he's getting this great income. He seems so well put together on the outside, and the inside is just so far from that. It's, it's an interesting picture today. You know, you, you can imagine this guy, like, if you were today, like, he's posting everything he can on his Insta snapbook and projecting this life that's complete, while inside, he's a complete mess. 
And maybe that sounds pretty familiar, that we put together this, this kind of camera-filtered life for the world, like, look how great my lawn is, look how clean my car is, don't I have nice clothes, look at my lovely family in this picture that we had to yell at each other for eight minutes to stop being crabby so we could all smile at the same time. And we project wholeness while feeling brokenness. And that's who this guy is. Look at my complete life. He appears to have it all together while missing what wholeness looks like. And that just speaks so true to today. And what we experience today with this projection of happiness while feeling completely alone and broken on the inside, what we experience is not new at all, but is as old as sin itself. What's interesting here is what Jesus says. So he comes and goes, all right, uh, good teacher. And Jesus goes, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus isn't sitting there going like, all right, like, look, I got this Messiah thing. Like, that's a good image, but you should see my gambling habit. Like, Jesus isn't denying his own goodness here. Jesus is pointing him to an opportunity to recognize what's really going on. Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. He's saying, no one's good except God. Now, had this young man at this point said, I know, and you are God, I think the rest of this conversation would have gone pretty differently. Instead, this guy who realizes that even though he has all the morals and all the money in the world and is still empty, he looks at the very Son of God and goes, I don't know what's going on. Maybe you can help me. What do I have to do? And instead of looking at the Son of God and saying, please give me eternal life, he, goes, he puts himself at the center while looking at the Son of God and says, what do I need to do so I can receive? I haven't earned it yet. What am I missing? Because I need to earn it. Your own good behavior will leave you desperately lacking. We can't start with ourselves. We can't put ourselves at the, at the center of our salvation. So Jesus kind of plays his game. And he goes, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, honor your father and mother. And this guy's like, yeah. And now the, the trick here in the genius of Jesus is Jesus didn't list all the commandments. He, I think Jesus lists the easy ones not to do on the surface. Like, it's pretty easy to go through life with never murdering anyone. I'm going 41 years strong without murdering anyone. I, I mean, that's, I don't think I get enough credit. But this isn't a moral checklist. Now, if I, now if I defined murder in Jesus' standards of without hating someone, my record might not be so clean. And if we counted adultery by Jesus' standards of never lusting after someone who's not your spouse, I don't think our, our record would be so clean. While on the flesh, on the, on the fleshly outward level, we can look pretty good 
we, we don't look so good on the inside. Ryle, J.C. Ryle says this. Hold on, because this is a little bit longer. Myriads of people who claim to be Christians today have not an idea of their own sinfulness and guilt in the sight of God. And here this, this guy's pretending to be perfectly moral in front of Jesus himself. They flatter themselves that they've never done anything very wicked. They've never murdered or stolen or committed adultery or given false testimony. They cannot surely be in as much danger of missing heaven as they believe. But they forget the holy nature of God that they are dealing with. They forget how often they break his law in temper or imagination or even when their outward conduct is correct. They never study such parts of scripture as Matthew 5 or at any rate, study it with a, they study it with a thick veil over their hearts and do not apply it to themselves. The result is that they are wrapped up in self-righteousness like the church of Laodicea. They are rich and have acquired wealth and do not need anything. Self-satisfied they live and self-satisfied too they often die. Let us be aware of this state of mind. So long as we think that we can keep the law of God, Christ does us no good. So often, let me read this again, so often as we think we can keep the law of God, Christ does us no good. And so Jesus, he doesn't respond to this guy by going, liar, liar, pants on fire. He doesn't call him a brood of vipers like he does the Pharisees who are self-righteous. But Jesus loves him. Can you imagine standing before the Holy Son of God, claiming you are without sin, yet realizing you're missing something, and the response toward you is love. This is where Jesus is so much better than me, because I would have been like, you're wasting my time. But Jesus loves him, and loving him casts the exposing light of God on his sinful heart. And I want us to realize that it's in love that Jesus will allow and often cause our sin to be exposed. In love, Jesus exposes our sin. So Jesus, in one statement, brings in the whole rest of the Ten Commandments. Sell your possessions, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And this guy's like, but I'm really rich. I can't give up everything for Jesus. I'm really rich. That's a lot. I mean, if the homeless guy gives everything up for Jesus, I mean, that's, what, what does he really give up? But me, I got, I got stuff. I got nice cars. I have a beautiful house. I have a TV that's taller than me. I can't give this up. Jesus exposes a few commandments, namely commandments about worship. No other gods before me. Don't put anything in the likeness of me. Don't take my name in vain. And then, and then there's this other commandment that Jesus left out in the beginning, but I think shows up here, and that's not coveting. Not being in want of something God hasn't given us. This is where we say, well, surely Jesus doesn't mean this. <laughs> Who would ever think that they should give up everything for the gospel? I mean, literally give up everything for the gospel. And that's when the next day, serendipitously and provincially, providentially, we, we arrive in our devos at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by you his poverty might become rich. Who is Jesus to tell this man he should give up absolutely everything for the sake of God's glory? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. And the man grieves because he knows he has the wrong God. And he finds himself in this impossible situation where he goes, I love my stuff and I get a lot of security from my moralism and my, my money and I get all this security from this and all these earthly things I hold on to that make me great. And he, he knows he has all the security and he knows that in having that security, he's missing God. And he finds himself in this possible situation where he goes, if, if I'm going to get God, I have to drop my earthly security and go to my heavenly Father. I have to do this. And he's realizing this, this biblical truth that you can only have one Savior. You can only worship one. So in who or what is your actual trust? Is your actual trust in the treasures of heaven? Or is it in, in something that moth can eat and rust can destroy and thieves can steal? I hope this question exposes our need to let go of something that we're holding on to for security. And maybe it's our moralism. And maybe it's something else, but it is our security that we need to let go of. We need to lose our earthly security. In what or who am I trusting in? And so Jesus starts assuming what the disciples are thinking, and, and Jesus does it correctly. How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples are amazed. And Jesus says to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. They go from amazed to exceedingly astonished. This is a moment for the disciples. And they bring up this objection, well then, who on earth can ever get saved? Because this guy, if ever there was a candidate for salvation, this guy with impeccable morals and what looks to us, because of our earthly value system, as wonderful heavenly blessings because he's rich, if he can't get in, then who can? Because if I was drafting, I'm, I'm taking on the role of the disciples here, if the disciples were drafting the kickball team for heaven, this guy would be first pick. How can he not get in? And there's, there's something in here that we always wrestle with as Americans. Why is Jesus picking on wealth and riches? That's not nice. It's not, it's not what the founding fathers wanted. How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God and then Jesus uses this deliberately impossible metaphor. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And some people have said, well, that was a gate, and it's tough for a camel to get through. No, it's a literal needle and a literal camel. 
It's kind of like a snowball's chance in, right? <laughs> Jesus is being intentionally hyperbolic on the difficulty of anyone getting into heaven based on their own merit and ability. It's easier for a literal camel to get through a literal eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I just want to, I just want to caution you because I over and over and over again, I, I see people come to these texts and they immediately come up with all the excuses on why it's not applying to their wealth. And before you do that, I want you to let it sit. I want you to let it make you uncomfortable. And where necessary, I want you to let it sting a bit. And why is it making you so uncomfortable? Because it's the problem isn't accruing wealth. We have passages in Scripture that talk about that being a blessing. Tim Keller says it's not so much having money, but trusting in it that ruins the soul. Do I trust in my money? We need to let go of our security because salvation has absolutely nothing to do with human ability or will and it has everything to do with God's power. To quote the great theologian Hugh Lewis, you don't need money, don't need fame, don't need no credit card to ride on this train. <laughs> After all, it's the power of love. <laughs> Losing our moralism and our ability means that we lose our stake in our own salvation. And that might be one of the scariest things for people. To say, if I am saved completely and utterly by God and his power, then I've done nothing for it, and I get no say in what I do. It's almost like I'm being told that I need to take up my cross, deny myself everything, and follow Jesus. This, is, this passage is a very interesting parallel of someone who appears to have potentially chosen their own things, or at least grieved the choice that they would have to deny themselves before they follow Jesus. Tim Keller says, if you want to be a Christian, of course you'll repent of your sins, but after you've repented of your sins, you'll have to repent of how you have used the good things in your life to fill the place where God should be. If you want intimacy with God, if you want to get this sense, get rid of the sense that something is missing, It'll have to become God that you love with all your heart and your strength. This young man's problem is not his financial worth, it's his moral worth. It's his sense that he doesn't need the grace of God. Christians are people who know that their Christianity is impossible, that it is a miracle. Jesus paints the impossibility, the human impossibility of salvation in such vivid terms that the disciples go from amazed to exceedingly astonished. And I hope that we would join the disciples in this, that we would view our own salvation with this level of shock. How can it be that I should gain, right? How can this be that I would inherit eternal life? How, how could I ever be saved? 
Because it's, the only way I can be saved is because absolutely nothing is impossible for God. God is so mighty that he can even save you. God is so powerful and so generous that even I can receive something as glorious as eternal life in the kingdom of God. And so dropping our earthly security for this power of God should be easy. And yet we hold on to it like Linus's blanket of, oh, I need my wealth. Oh, I need my influence. Oh, I need my, my voting record. Oh, I need my family tree. Oh, I need my morals. So that we think we can come to heaven and say, well, look how good I've been for you, God. Not forgetting the scripture calls our acts of righteousness apart from God as filthy rags. And we only enter by the grace of God. And when we make our salvation truly about God and Him alone, then we celebrate the miracle of salvation. We celebrate this miracle of salvation by making it all about God's love, all about God's grace and power. And we lift up high these hallmarks of the gospel. That I confessed my sin to the most holy God. I confessed my sin to the God for whom it was ultimately against. And he forgave me. And he wiped my record clean with the blood of his own son. So that I can enter heaven, not as a doorman, but as a child of the king. And the last part of this is we get focused on how much this, this man was going to have to lose to follow Jesus. We need to look at the don't worry, you will gain more than you lose promise at the end. Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. If you are here this morning and you are worried for what you will have to lay down to follow Jesus, I want to let you know the investment is guaranteed. Jesus makes an absolute promise that is better than anything Charles Schwab will give you. You will receive a hundredfold. And so there's, I, I want to point out two things that we absolutely have to do here. One is we need to realize, as the, I'm, I'm going to talk to, first I'm talking to believers, then I'm talking to non-believers, okay? So believers, those of you who have called on the name of Jesus, those who have made Jesus your Lord, those who have confessed your sin, been forgiven, and you are, you are now children of God, and this time waiting your eternal life. This is what it means for you. You better be this family. We need to be this. If we, as a church, are going to be praying that people would come to Christ who are now very, very far from him. We better be ready to be this. If we are going to be teaching ELL with the hope that, that, that immigrants from all over the world, especially as we just have this burden in our heart for the unreached, unengaged people groups, 
and knowing that God has been bringing people to our city from places like Afghanistan, and we're going to say, oh, we want to see these people come to Jesus, knowing that when, when this person comes from, to, from, from a Muslim background to Christ, they're going to be kicked out of their house. We better be this. And I just want to throw this out. What if God gave you a house with the luxury of a guest room so that a new brother or sister in Christ can move in with you? Because they've just been cast out of their family and maybe beat up on their way out the door. We are in the midst of what's become known as LGBTQ plus Pride Month. And if we are going to be praying for people from that community, our, for a lot of us, our coworkers, neighbors, maybe our family members, if we're going to be praying for them to come to Christ, knowing that when they lay down their sexuality that is contrary to Scripture to follow the Lord, knowing that as Jesus works that in them, they're going to be ostracized from that community, we better be ready to be their family. We better be ready to welcome them in, to say, this is my sister who I just met. This is my brother who I just met, and I'm going to share the good things God has given me with them, even, when it me even if it means there's now a whole new category of presents under the tree at my house at Christmas because my brother's coming over for Christmas. There's a new seat at the table at, at any meal. Build on the relationship God has given you. And, and part of what this means for us is we need to do a better job of doing this for each other, not just waiting for someone else to come to know Christ. But this is an application. I think this is some of you, this is your favorite sermon application I give from time to time. Before you leave here today, find someone you don't know and pick a place and go out for lunch and get to know each other and start your relationship. There's a whole bunch of people that are going to be having, they'll go get lunch and, and go to room 210, right, John? Come join them. Gazebo, oh, the gazebo, it's good weather. They'll be outside. Thank you. Now, if you're not a believer and you're here and you're trying to check out Christianity and you hear this and you think, I could get, if I have to leave my family, if I have to leave my lifestyle, if I have to leave my community, I could get a hundredfold. I don't want you to do this. I want you to trust the Lord on this. God is the giver of all good things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. He provides. He keeps his word. Would you trust him? Would you let us become your family? Would you let us take you in? Would you let us teach you to walk with the Lord and show you the wonders of his mercy and grace? And so as we close to prayer, I want you to, whether you're saved or unsaved, I want you to think about two different things. If you're, again, I'm going to start with the saved people. Is there something you've been holding on to that you need to let go of? Have one of these things, your ego, your security, your moralism, have they been getting in the way? Have they cropped up? Like, I know, I know I belong to Christ, but you know what? The last few months I've been trusting these other things and I need to drop them in return. 
Your salvation's not at risk, but your joy certainly is, and your worship certainly is. So would you drop those things? There's some things you need to let go of. And if you're here and you're not saved, I just want to let you know, you can receive eternal life. The Bible tells us that if you confess that Jesus is Lord, meaning I'm going to say with all integrity, Jesus is Lord, he's king of my life, he has absolute authority, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and this, this is built on the assumption that Jesus had to die on the cross for your sin, and God approved that, so I confess Jesus is Lord, I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One way you can put that into action is you can pray and say, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you give me new life and let me walk with you? And I invite you just to pray that in your heart. We want to know if you prayed that. If you're here and you're a believer and you've had some things you've had to drop, we want to know about that too. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are so good. You are such a mighty God. It is by you and you alone and your power that we can have salvation. And Lord, there's so many times where we try to make it about us in some twisted way. And Lord, we don't have that power to save ourselves. Only you have that power to save us. And we thank you that you have graciously used that power for that purpose. That you have brought us to yourself. And you have paved the way through the blood of Christ because you loved us so much. Jesus, let us never balk at your lordship. But over and over and over again, humbly submit ourselves to you and trust your provision. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.